Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. This is a panel beater here with you on Radiotherapy and Dr. Sharma and Dr. Neo through till 11am. Um, Good morning to the both of you. Morning Good. to you. Good morning. How are you enjoying this new world? Do you know, it's been surreal. It's been a surreal few weeks. I feel like I've just stepped out of a you know 18-month bubble. <laughs> I'm one of those people who's... Uh, like still finding it hard to adjust. Yeah, yeah. What, can you put your finger on why or what? Well, I think it's probably you know different for everyone. But for me, I've basically just been living my life. You know, kind of on <laughs> feels like on pause, just one day at a time. And there's a lot of things yeah. that I tell you what that have been kind of positive in terms of these these lockdowns and the pandemic that I've just been able to kind of put off very conveniently. Oh. Okay, <laughs> I can't do much about X, Y, and Z. And well, you know, because the world stopped, and now suddenly the world's back on, and now it's all back on me. To sort myself out. It's incredible. Yeah, what about you, Dr. Nair? I'm very much the same. I'm finding it a bit surreal and trying to take things slow. I I find myself making plans in my head and then being like, actually, I, I might just sit on the couch and do well, nothing tonight. <laughs> Friday fortnight ago was our first kind of release, well, stage yeah. release, wasn't it? And I made plans. And I didn't, no. didn't do them. And I think that's fine. I, I think <laughs> that's Is this fine. a bit of like weirdo Stockholm syndrome? Like we're <laughs> yeah. sympathising with the, the captor, which is lockdown? <laughs> I guess so. I guess there's something to do with it there. Um, have, have, has your experience been so far with different places you've gone to that may or may not be asking you for proof of vaccination? Yeah, I, I've i gone to, I mean, I live in the inner north and I think that's a bit of a, a bias and Biased uh, population, but every place that I've gone to, it's always quite you know check in, show, yeah. us, show us your check in, show us your tick, yeah. Um, and people are always very happy too. Like we don't, like, there's been I haven't seen any arguments, haven't seen any any disputes. Yeah, every place I've been to, which has asked for a certificate, I've always asked, "Have you had any problems?" Mm-hmm. And they're also no, everyone's fine. Yeah, everyone's up yeah. for it. Everyone's up for it. I've uh, I haven't had any problems with it either. I have noticed I haven't always been asked. Yeah. Um, so I've noticed cool. that, and um, and you know I've heard the reports of people witnessing a lot of service staff getting grief from oh, recalcitrant abusers, yeah. and that that is horrible. Well, yeah. The, the interesting thing there is how the Victorian government said that this is potentially something that's going to continue throughout twenty twenty two, right? Which I don't know how tenable that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with, you know, and looking at the good side of it, how incredibly high our vaccination rate is. I think by the time we hit 2022, it's going to be double vaxxed of, you know, well over 90%. And, yeah. And then there's this issue of boosters as well. When, like, where does it stop? Do we start oh. Do we start mandating boosters? And then asking for certificates after, of that. After, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's a, a feasible thing. Yeah, I, I think that's well. it. You know, we can make the, the kind of moral argument and the health argument, but yeah. when we bring it down to practicality, I just yeah. don't think it's going yeah. to happen. Yeah, there's something to be said for the aspiration being get to back, getting back as quickly as possible to quote-unquote normal. And I think that isn't it? includes us making you know, genuine pleas to, like, this is good for your health, this is good for society, but not... 
removing mandates and things. Which I guess is the way to do mandates as a you know, last resort when desperate. Mm, yeah. um, and I, I think we've got people on board. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. Should yeah. Minimal intervention. Oh, and haven't the teenagers been amazing? Amazing. Oh, oh my God. Just, I reckon that's been my highlight of the last little while is just, you know, just how we just watched that statistic just mm. exponentially grow um, over that time. One of my uh, favourite stories about the teenagers is that the, uh, the Twitter site COVID Base ha- being run by oh, yeah. you know three fifteen year olds uh, is just incredible. Like it's it they've produced some of the most amazing statistics and always yeah. on the ball and so much time and effort to go into it. And, and, by- and it ties into exactly what Panel Beta was saying about the kids getting vaccinated because that's how we learned, of course, yeah. that it was these two yeah. three fourteen fifteen year old uh, kids who they shared their vaccine selfie and. Uh, I, I, you took the words straight out of my mouth, Dr. Neo. That's my feel-good story of the, mm. the year, mm. is seeing that these yeah, young teenagers are just leading the way. The future is bright. The future is bright. Yes, yeah. I have hope. Exactly, exactly. Hey, um, show's full as a googie egg. Not necessarily Halloween-themed um, at all, but we've got two cracking uh, guests working backwards. Second up, we'll be welcoming back to the show Craig, Kate Grigorovich. Uh, Vyom, what are we going to be speaking about there? Well, I'm going to be getting uh, Dr. Grigorovich's thoughts on some very recent controversial comments that were made by the head of uh, Victoria AMA about Mm. potentially denying people uh, care of of COVID if they are deniers or sceptics about COVID. Uh, She was one of the doctors who was publicly asserted her criticism about Mm. it, and so I'm sure she's going to have some great thoughts on that to share with us. It's a juicy topic, isn't it? It is, and it's not simple. I think it's not as simple as... Give everyone care; it's all fine. Uh, or you know, or, you know, it, it's not a binary. I, I think yeah. we might get into that with Kate. Yeah, yeah, right. plenty, plenty of nuance to unpack there, which will be fabulous. And we um, contemporaneously, we've got COP twenty six happening, mm. and our fearless leaders are all headed over to um, do their thing with their pamphlets. Mm. Fearless leaders, <laughs> <laughs> intrepid. Oh. Uh, Leaders, um, and we've got a uh, special guest, uh, John Van der Kallen, who's the chair of the DEA. Neo, you know a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah, he's going to have a have a hopefully very interesting discussion around some recent announcements by the Australian government saying that they have a plan, mm-hmm. it's, uh, a plan to get us somewhere, uh, and you know, kind of why doctors are interested interested in climate change. You know, it's not exactly a very obvious link. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I've heard some criticism before that doctors shouldn't, you know, get out of the climate change world <laughs> and it's not really our place to be in. But I think John will give a very good argument as to why we we deserve to have a voice yeah. in that in that field. Can't I did wait. say DEA and, um, of course, the bloody acronyms, they get in the way, don't they? DEA is Doctors for the Environment Australia. Yeah. That's the link there. Yeah, um, yeah that, that get out of your lane or get back in your lane type mm. argument. I've never under, I've never really bought into it. I think John will give a very convincing argument why yeah. it, it is our lane. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, look, we'll take a, a couple of um, uh, station announcements while we get John on the phone, and uh, we'll be back to make that link between um, health and the environment and indeed uh, climate change. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
Welcome back. We've got Dr. John van der Kellen on the line, who is the chair of the Doctors for the Environment Australia and a rheumatologist in Newcastle. He's lived in the Hunter Valley for over 18 years and seen the Hunter Valley change dramatically with the increase in coal mining. Aside from his clinical work in rheumatology, he is now focused on the impacts of climate change on our health. Thank you for joining us, John. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me on. So we've had you on for a, a very specific reason. Could you give us a bit of a rundown on the recent announcements made by the, the Australian federal government and on how Australia will face the climate crisis? Ah, so I guess you're referring to the Net Zero 2050 announcement uh, in the last week or so? Exactly. Um, yeah, so, you know, after much gnashing of teeth and uh, controversy, the uh, federal government uh, has announced that it will have a Net Zero uh, target by 2050, which is very welcome. Um, you know, many people have been calling for this for a long time. Um, our worry, however, is that the plan doesn't really have many details on how they're going to achieve that. And based on what's been happening over the last few decades, it doesn't fill us with confidence that this will be able to be achieved. Um, specifically, we really would love to see a target, of, uh, a stronger target by 2030 um, with a a specific plan about how to get there. Mm. Um, so some individuals might be a bit surprised that doctors are so passionate about the environment and perhaps think that we are overstepping our bounds by attempting to influence policy in this region. What are your what are your comments on this, John? Well, it's pretty clear now that our health is uh, closely linked to the health of the environment. Um, when you think about uh, the air that we breathe, the, the water that we drink, uh, the food that we eat, all of those things are uh, related to the, to the health of the environment. Um, and now the, one of the biggest impacts for our well-being is going to be uh, rising temperatures. Um, and it's clear now that as the temperatures rise that our health is affected by that. Um, so, for instance, uh, it's been demonstrated that over the last 20 years, uh, the mortality related to heat stress in people over the age of 65 has doubled. Um, and there are many other ways that heat affects us as well. So for younger people, the way that um, we can work in outdoor environments, um, the effects on um, uh, pregnancies, uh, the effects on children, uh, the effects on um, those who have other medical uh, issues are all going to be impacted by heat. Um, but heat's only one of the obvious uh, ways um, we see uh, events with um, uh, extreme climate events such as the bushfires and, um, and droughts uh, and how that affects people as well. Um, but all of these things then lead back into our food systems and our air quality and, um, um, and, and, the, and the effects of those on, on our health generally. So as doctors, if we're going to help protect people's health, then um, protecting the environment and protecting biodiversity becomes central to, to all of our health and our existence. John, you know that the links between 
uh, climate change and direct physical human health is clear. I know it's clear, but where do you gauge the public's understanding of that link? You know, because I think you know, mm. when you say things like your know, deaths due to heat stroke have you know kind of doubled in the, in, the, in recent years, that'll probably come as a bit of a surprise to people. How do you gauge where the public's understanding is in terms of the direct health impacts to them of climate change in future? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, um, a you know difficult area. Um, a lot of people don't see the links at all. Um, but you know, every day people comment on the weather. You know, um, I've got a lot of patients who work in outdoor environments, and you know they've noticed the increasing heat and how that affects them at work. Um, they they have to have plans in place for that. Um, you know, the, uh, sporting uh, people uh, and and how. Uh, heat and weather events affect sport. I mean, we've cha- seen changes um, in the World Cup, for instance, and having increased breaks uh, during um, during the game. Um, but whether people can make that connection to what's happening in our climate um, and with um, uh, global emissions, that link isn't always there. Um, there's been some really great uh, research done by Rebecca Huntley uh, looking at how uh, people are uh, understanding the uh, effects of climate. Um, and about a third of people are really alarmed about it, you know, and they really understand the, the impacts and they want to see things happen as fast as possible. Uh, but then about a quarter of the population are really dismissive about it, doubtful and disengaged. They don't really get it. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't really accept it. Um, and this could be for lots of reasons. Um, you know, a lot of it's about uh, their preconceived ideas about things. Some of it's about them having said there's been no link for decades and uh, that would be a, a big difficulty difficulty for them to, to, to change their thinking. Um, John, yeah. just on that uh, train of thought there, it, it sounds to me there's probably a, a significant number of people who would listen to that and say, okay, so heat's not good for my health um, and maybe climate change and, and, and perhaps even go to the extent of accepting that climate change is um, directly linked and it's even anthropomorphic, it's man-made, um, but they might say to themselves, well, why don't I just take the doctor's advice and just make sure I'm hydrated, make sure I get enough shade, make sure I, um, um, you know, keep my body temperature down where I can, and and, and in fact managing a consequence of climate change just for, through that kind of behaviour change. Yeah, that's right, and that's going to be something that we all have to do. You know, the adaptation to rising temperatures is going to be very important, and like we've had health messages in the past, like slip, slop, slap, or you know, get uh, healthy or whether get fit, um, you know, to, to lose weight and and um, you know reduce cardiovascular disease. Uh, we're all going to have to learn to adapt to our changing environment. Um, but it's not just that because, you know, unless we really change the things that we're doing, um, the temperatures are, are going to get higher, um, the loss of biodiversity and the impacts on all our food systems and uh, air quality and water um, security is going to worsen. So we have to, we have to mitigate against what's going on. Um, and that's where, um, you know, people are going to have to look at um, what they're doing and how they can reduce their own emissions, but also to become more proactive to make sure that our leaders are also making the right decisions. 
um, and that we're not being told that things are being uh, are happening when in fact it's not happening. Um, and I think that comes back to that uh, first question you asked me about the net zero by 2050 uh, plan. Um, we really need details on how the country is going to become net zero uh, mm. so that we can mitigate against these increasing health impacts that we're going to experience. And I guess in my mind, it feels this net zero by 2050 without a plan feels a bit irresponsible because as we've seen with COVID being the the prime example, uh, global public health tends to be magnified in developing countries and in lower socioeconomic groups. And, you know, Australia will likely have the resources to be able to adapt to these changes for a number of years, but as we're seeing in the Pacific Islands, they don't have the resources and they don't have the time to wait to 2050 and wait for things to get worse. Um, I guess they're, they're a good example of, of where we will be and what's going to happen. Could you give us a bit of a, a rundown on what the Pacific Islands, for example, are seeing now with climate, climate change? And Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I agree. I mean, certainly the consequences of this environmental crisis are going to fall disproportionately on those who have least contributed to it and are least able to mitigate against it. And the Pacific Islands are, are clearly um, at the top of that list. Um, uh, you know, many of their um, islands are only just above sea level and uh, where they have coral reefs, etc., which have been protecting them, they will no longer be protecting them, and the water will lap up against their uh, houses. And really, they don't have the resources um, to, to, to protect themselves against that, um, nor do they have the ability to mitigate against it because they don't produce much carbon emissions compared to uh, the rich countries. Um, so, you know, during COP26, which is coming up, uh, the uh, Pacific Islanders have uh, a climate action network, uh, which is really want, who really want to be central to the uh, discussions at uh, Glasgow. Um, and they have a number of uh, asks, demands, I guess, because it's really about their own existence. Um, and they really want to see the rich countries uh, stepping up and uh, reducing fossil fuel emissions, um, making a, a concerted effort to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, and most importantly, develop, delivering some finance to help them uh, adapt to the changes. Um, and this does seem to be one of the priorities for the Australian government in the negotiations as well, that they'll really be talking about the, the, how for the world to um, uh, confirm that they're going to give money to the, to the um, poorer countries to be able to uh, adapt. Um, and we're talking figures of $100 billion US dollars per year to to 2025 so you know these are this is a big um, amount of money John, John um, in recent times um, the DEA um, again for our listeners doctors uh, for the environment Australia have made a couple of statements linking climate change to mental health um, that might be some yeah. kind of distress and I noted one particular statement um, was more specifically at young people and the distress their experience with loss of natural environment can you talk us through you know, the foundation thinking about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, 
the younger generation has really grown up learning all about climate change um, since school. Um, I think uh, some of us in the older generations uh, have only uh, started hearing about it uh, since we left school. So for the younger generations, it's a no-brainer, you know, that it's, it's a given what's going on. And I think for many of them who understand what solutions are needed, uh, for them not to see these changes occurring is causing a lot of distress, a lot of mental anguish. Um, they they are in the alarm group that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the, they um, want to see uh, changes happening. So um, these will then, you know, impact on how they see the future and um, they don't feel that they have the same opportunities as the older generations have. Um, uh, and, and, and we've seen that as temperatures have rise, that there's been an increase in um, self-harm, uh, for instance, uh, with climate being one of those factors. John, uh, you... Uh you make a very clear case of the health impacts of climate change. Obviously, that's the entire point of your of the project that you're you're a part of. Here's my question. Um, earlier on, we were just chatting amongst ourselves about how doctors are often told to stay in their lane uh, because while the health perspective on climate change impacts is one lens, there's multiple other lenses too. There's an economic lens, there's a humanitarian lens that potentially goes beyond just healthcare. Um, What is the role that you see for healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but allied health and and nursing staff, etc.? How, what is the way that we can be part of that conversation and what are perhaps the limits of, uh, of you know, where we should intrude? Hmm. Well, you know, the climate change is uh, primarily a health um, issue, um, you know, maybe apart from the biodiversity loss that's happening as well, which is the health of the planet and, and everything that lives on it. Uh, but certainly the health is... A, primary issue. You know, this is all going to affect our existence. So that's definitely in our remit as doctors. Um, But as professionals and as professionals throughout the healthcare sector, um, there's there's, uh, that messaging that we should be trying to work on to get across to our patients. But there's also our own, you know, carbon footprint that we have to uh, look at. Um, Australia's a Approximate uh, uh, healthcare in Australia is approximately seven percent of our emissions. Um, you know that can come as a surprise to some people, but you know we have to lead by example and also reduce our own carbon footprints. Uh, let alone tell everybody else that they should be doing it. Um, so, uh, from a professional perspective, uh, those who work within healthcare can look at how they deliver the healthcare. You know, some healthcare is much higher value than other um, uh, healthcare, and maybe trying to reduce those low-value um, uh, uh, healthcare initiatives is uh, worth it. Um, and also looking at, at the facilities that they work at and whether you know waste can be reduced. Uh, um, electricity use uh, can be renewable, um, uh, trying to find ways so that there's not as much uh, transport required by the medical uh, people or the patients. Um, So, yeah, so we have our own responsibility that that we need to, to look at. 
John, I'm sure um, you got uh, doctors um, uh, for the Environment Australia and, and doctors in general and, and anyone interested in climate change and being advocates and um, activists are looking for as many opportunities to collect tools in their toolkit to make policy change arguments. One of the ones that I've come across um, was a proposal, I think it was about middle of last year, from some researchers at ANU, um, ANU Med School, Australian National University, suggesting mm-hmm. that um, deaths that could be related to climate change be recorded on death certificates as, you know, as a comorbidity or something like that. Um, do you guys have a position on that or just um, if I could put you on the spot for your thoughts? <laughs> Good question. Um, no, I don't think we've actually discussed that, certainly not lately or in detail. Um, but it is a really interesting thing and I remember actually as an intern when we would have patients dying of respiratory diseases uh, from smoking and wanting to put smoking on the death certificates um, and that was very controversial at that time even though again those links are clear, clearly defined. Um, so yeah, I, I, I haven't had any further discussions on that or uh, heard anything more but um, interesting concept. <laughs> And John, just to finally close out, uh, I think uh, ending on a bit of a positive note in um, giving us, giving our listeners some advice on what they can do to help reduce their own personal impact on the environment, and perhaps get involved with encouraging our government to be a bit more productive, proactive. Yeah, and I mean that's the point, and I and I think that despite all the doom and gloom, there are so many solutions out there, and it's just a matter of our leaders being able to take those solutions and putting them into action. And the, the, the benefits of doing that will actually improve our health. So, for instance, you know, reducing the burning of fossil fuels um, cleans the air, which means that kids get less asthma, you know, the, the uh, outcomes from pregnancy improve, um, people's cardiovascular risk improves. Um, similarly, um, moving to more of a vegetable-based diet um, reduces uh, the emissions that come from the, the animal sources of our food, but also improves our own uh, health uh, by reducing the risk of cancers and cardiovascular disease um, and our own gut health. Um, so there are those kind of personal things that we can do as far as our own diet, our own electricity use, our own transport's concerned, and that's really important. Um, but as but it's as a group and as a community that we really need to put a lot of pressure on our policymakers to make these things happen. And it really gets under my skin when there's greenwashing going on, telling us and trying to reassure us uh, that. We've got it all in hand and just listen to us uh, and we will look after you because that's ex- not what is happening. Um, uh, some of our leaders are really playing around with numbers, uh, trying to tell us that we're going to make our emission targets at a gallop uh, when in fact there's been no structural changes to reduce our emissions and they continue to... Uh, plan for new gas uh, and fossil fuel projects. Um, so 
we really need to make sure that as a community that our leaders get that message. Um, and for those who are sort of wavering and not really sure whether the climate thing is really an issue for them, um, well, it is a thing for them. And um, you really need to be telling the leaders uh, that you want to see some definite plans uh, to protect their, your own health, uh, but also to mitigate against uh, future uh, health impacts. Um, so people can do that by just directly ringing their own politician or sending them a letter and just saying, I'm concerned about this, please do something. Um, or you could join a group. So for those who are doctors, you know, joining Doctors for the Environment Australia is really helpful, gives us a stronger voice. Um, but there are many other groups who are working on this uh, issue as well. And, uh, you know, more the merrier. Um, and I think if people are concerned and worried, then being part of a group um, really gives you strength and uh, hope um, and, um, you know, people to bond with who feel the same. Thank you very much for your help today, John. Uh, it's been a very fascinating discussion um, and I'm sure people have uh, learned quite a lot. Great. Oh, hopefully. Well, any time, more than happy to chat. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks, John. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're about to discuss something that really caused quite a lot of controversy last week, and we're going to dip into why that is. And I think the real reason is because you know, a core tenet of medicine, I think, is to provide care, healthcare to people, regardless of their beliefs. And so late last week, when the president of the Victoria AMA made a statement uh, that those who denied the virus, he's talking about the COVID virus here, of course, uh, those who denied the virus existed and refused to be vaccinated should opt out of receiving public healthcare if they become ill with a disease. So... Hugely in conflict with some of those principles we, we mentioned earlier, potentially. Uh, and there was a lot of criticism, including from Victorian uh, Deputy Premier James Molino, President of the National AMA, Omar Khorshid. But the thing is, this wasn't just an offhand comment that was quickly dismissed and forgotten. It really made a lot of people really uncomfortable and conflicted, including healthcare workers. One of those healthcare workers who criticised the comments publicly was Melbourne geriatrician Dr Kate Grigorovich, who throughout the pandemic has treated patients who have COVID at Royal Melbourne Hospital. She's the author of the book titled Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and Longer. She's also actually uh, just came to her mind the co-author of a, a really important landmark Australian paper that helped us recognise uh, airborne aerosol-based transmission of COVID. Uh, Kate, uh, Dr Kate Grigorovich joins us now. Kate, you there? Yes, good morning. Good to hear your voice. Kate, there's so much to discuss here. And before I go on, we should mention that you know, the doctor in question did you know, kind of retract and apologise in, in, in a way for the comments. So I don't want to dwell too much on the specifics of what he said. But you know, when you, you heard his comments, uh, we all saw them in the paper about how people who are passionate disbelieves the virus that exists, they should you know, notify their nearest and dearest in their advanced care directives to say that you know, I, I will not disturb the public health system and let nature run its course. You know, it certainly caught a lot of us by a bit of shock. What was your reaction to the comments? My immediate reaction was that this was completely 
in conflict with the ethics of medicine and with the values that we practice when we when we provide clinical care. It's an absolute privilege when someone is really sick and when they're trusting you as a doctor to help them in their moment of need. And some people haven't made great health decisions, but that does not mean they're not deserving of care. And obviously I've met people who haven't been vaccinated for various reasons, often around fear and misinformation. And when they do get sick and they get scared, they deserve compassionate care. Mm. It's interesting you say that because it, clearly misinformation is a bit of an issue there. Uh, but you also wrote a piece in The Guardian talking about the patients who are getting, uh, uh, getting COVID. How big a problem is this your group of people who are you know, misinformed and denying COVID versus other reasons for not getting vaccinated? in your personal experience? Yeah, in my experience, no one was denying that COVID was a thing. And I want to be really clear, when I'm providing clinical care for people who are in hospital who've got COVID, I, I don't go into, unless they want to talk about it, I don't go into reasons why they're not vaccinated because my first priority is to make them feel safe and provide medical care. But when people talk about it, sometimes they've been misinformed and... Again, whether this is a miscommunication or not, some people tell me that healthcare providers told them various reasons not to get vaccinated. Sometimes this may or may not be true. Sometimes people misinterpret what people say. Sometimes people hadn't quite understood the urgency to get vaccinated. Some people earlier in the pandemic had also found it very hard to access vaccination. So with all that in mind, yeah, it's firstly perhaps not as huge a problem as we imagine, which is perhaps why those comments were caught us all by surprise but also as you've said from your practice there's lots of people reasons why people didn't get vaccinated which we can sympathize with uh so you know I, i'm also you know, then potentially interested in actually exploring for people what that word advanced care directive actually means and as a geriatrician you'd be very familiar uh because the comments by the uh, that doctor were that people should put down in their advanced care directive that they are not going to be accepting you know certain treatments can you tell us a bit about what that, that phrase advanced care directive is so an advanced care directive is more of a guide around people's values so that when they need healthcare, uh, they can, people, doctors can working with the patients can make the right decisions for that person. So as an example, for people who are very elderly, say 85 plus, especially if they've got a condition like osteoporosis, we know that doing chest compressions is an ineffective, to restart the heart is an ineffective treatment. So we know that from studies where it generally doesn't restart the heart and even if it does it often um, then causes such severe rib fractures and I really want my patients to get better I want to help my patients recover they usually want to get home again but it means often not doing treatments that are going to be really burdensome really painful and that are not going to get people home again and so it's something that changes over time it's something that's individual and you know one of the challenges is none of us know exactly what's going to happen to us in the future, but it's really about helping people who, if you're if you're in a situation where you're incapacitated, helping people around you make decisions that are in line with your values. Such a great point there that it's not necessarily something that's rigid, that it is an, uh, an opinion uh, and a view that you're allowed to change in time. And also what you said about how it's supposed to be informed by values. So we're talking about people who are potentially denying that COVID exists, and we know those you know, small percentage of people do exist, that doesn't mean that they don't value their own health. 
Like they can potentially tell that they are sick. They they, they could agree that they need oxygen and medicines while still perhaps having that cognitive dissonance of, oh, you know, the virus doesn't exist. And in, in that way, it sounds like from what you're saying, it'd be pretty inappropriate to suggest to, to, to those patients who are denying that COVID exists that put down your advanced care directives that you don't value your health and you're not going to get treatment. That's right. An advanced care directive shouldn't be made under duress. And so the other, the other part of this as well is working in healthcare. I work in a public hospital. A lot of people don't always make the best decisions for their health, but it doesn't mean they don't deserve treatment. Yeah, it's Dr. Neo here. I, so I'm a junior doctor in the public healthcare system and we have a lot of discussions around you know, triaging of medical care and especially now with quite full ICUs, we've got there's always a discussion around uh, who gets the next bed and you know when the next bed will be available. But I guess in the discussions that I've been a part of, it's often uh, a discussion around who, what medical condition the patient has, a lot of their comorbidities, and you know who needs the bed more. It's never really a discussion around their personal life choices and their you know if they smoked, if they're a bad person, if they're a good person, and I think that. That's kind of how I like it. I don't want to be making moral decisions each day. I don't want to be seeing, um, being the arbiter of who gets healthcare and who doesn't because of personal choices. Exactly. And I think as well, there's been a lot of attention in the media about making these decisions, but these are things that have been in practice for as long as I've been a doctor. And I graduated from university in 2006. So unfortunately, having to think about ICUs being full is not, a new problem, but it's also about providing the best possible care I can for my patient as well. And for some people, ICU's not going to meaningfully improve their chances of survival because they're very frail, they've got other life-limiting medical conditions. And so it's really about trying to give the right care for the patient, but it's not about someone making decisions based on someone's life choices and making moral judgments. You know, Kate, I think we're pretty much all in agreement that this, the idea of allocating healthcare based on beliefs in the way we've talked about it is pretty inappropriate. But I'm also so interested in how and why these comments come about. Like, it's, it's, it'd be pretty dishonest to say that what, uh, what, what this doctor has said is just, you know, one person's uh, views. Like, we know there's a degree of cynicism that I, I see creeping in amongst healthcare workers currently. Um, you know, in, in the context of COVID and, and how you know, there's a lot of care that we wish we could provide patients that we, we can't. There are elective surgeries that are being cut. There are you know, people who perhaps we otherwise would have previously admitted we can't because the hospitals are kind of full. You know, do you, in your work, see a sense of kind of like moral fatigue and kind of compassion fatigue going on? Look, I wouldn't say that I've seen that personally. I think as... Healthcare workers, many of us are really, really concerned about these indirect impacts of COVID and what's going to happen. As an example, we've actually seen some data from May of 2021, there was already an increase in cancer deaths in Australia. And so people potentially missing their things like bowel cancer screening is going to have ongoing effects. For some people who've been waiting for joint replacement surgery, which isn't necessarily life-saving, but has a huge impact on quality of life, this is going to have a huge impact. But COVID's also here to stay, and I think one of the really important things we have to look at how we balance is how we provide care for those who have 
a medical need for care from COVID, but also trying to still do our best to manage the chronic conditions. And it's worth remembering in Australia, the chronic non-communicable diseases, things like dementia, heart disease, lung disease from smoking, are still our really big killers and things that cause a lot of illness and things that we can do a lot to prevent and a lot to manage better. And it's something that we need to really urgently address how we can look at balancing all of these things. Kate, um, with your Guardian article that uh, got our attention and, and really um, encouraged us to get in touch with you on this, you also um, referred to a really important um, matter in my mind, and that's the socioeconomic distribution of the impact of, of COVID and I guess and, and public health provision um, overall. Can you um, perhaps articulate far better than I could what, those, what it means to talk about the socioeconomic relevance to, to patients and patient care? So even looking at before the pandemic started, there's already a gradient of health along socioeconomic lines in Australia. And so we know that people who are in the lower socioeconomic groups were at higher risk of mortality in what they call earlier adulthood, so this was people who are from 18 to 74. We know that things like smoking, obesity, diabetes all track along these lines. Then, in addition to that, last year we saw in the pandemic there were higher case numbers in LGAs, certain LGAs with people who've got generally less money. And, you know, often this because people live in homes with more, with other people, with, there's more people per household, they do jobs where they physically need to attend, like working in aged care or meat processing plants. And so restrictions or lockdowns that work for people who can work from home and don't live with many other people, don't work if you live with seven other people and you physically attend a workplace. And so then all of these things have then come out again this year in the pandemic. And I think it's really important that even when COVID settles down, that we don't lose sight. This is really, I think, one of the biggest health issues we have in our society. And I think that you're right. A lot of the the patients that I personally see with COVID are um, often in large households, lower socioeconomic, and uh, are all unvaccinated, but not unvaccinated from often from choice. It's often from misinformation or from us not appropriately reaching a lot of these groups through health messaging that should have been um, targeted towards you know, a lot of the lower socioeconomic groups or the, the non-English speaking groups that are so vulnerable during these periods of um, high levels of COVID spreading in the community. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, now it's fantastic to see that some of these areas have got really high vaccination rates. And a lot of that comes from people in the community getting out there and helping to spread accurate information. Okay, just a question actually about you here. Um, You're currently still seeing patients with COVID, I believe, right? I have been, I haven't for a little bit because my, um, I missed my last round of COVID ward service because I broke a rib. So, oh, I, yes. Jeez, you need to bit, get out of COVID, physically, you, physically, hey? a bit, physically a bit much to do it. <laughs> um, I've, you've been with treating COVID patients right since the start. I wonder if you could just kind of step back for a second and tell us, how do you find treating Co- you know, working in the COVID you know, kind of workforce now, this year, with you, know, you getting vaccinated, patients getting vaccinated compared to last year, what's that personal experience for you like? Is there a change in you know, your, 
your, everything from like your motivation or fear or optimism? What's yeah, it like now compared very, to last year? Look, it's, last year it was very different. I was working through an outbreak, a COVID outbreak, um, which was affecting staff and patients. Um, my colleagues, so many of them caught COVID, so there was that, you know, there was always that worry that I was going to bring it home to my family. Um, I was going to get sick myself, but we didn't. This year is very, very different. It feels extremely safe. Obviously, I'm vaccinated. I we have a, I have a fit tested in 95. We have great safety protocols. It's quite calm. This last year as well, I was working on an aged care ward, and a lot of people died, which was really, really sad, and that was that took a toll as well. This year, we've still got some older patients, but younger patients who tend to get better as well. So it feels very safe and controlled this year compared to last year. And particularly with, hopefully, with boosters on the way for our elderly, frail population as well. Yeah, that's right. So for someone who maybe has other medical problems, who's elderly, um, then if they had their vaccine more than six months ago, they're now eligible for a booster. Kate, look, thank you so much for joining us. And I think you've you know, really articulated beautifully why it is important that we are not judgmental about people's beliefs in treating for healthcare. And um, I think you really spoke for a lot of us healthcare workers in you know, kind of condemning some of those comments, which I'm glad have been retracted and apologised for, but also just reaffirming for people uh, our commitment to, to treat people regardless of, uh, of their beliefs. So thank you so much for your time. That's right. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Kate Grigorovich, a Melbourne geriatrician, also the author of, uh, of the book Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and Longer, and has been working throughout the pandemic 2020 and 2021. Always love hearing from her. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Just one last thought on um, that last story is that I think it should be noted that with I come across a lot of healthcare workers and not a single one has ever set, stated or indicated that they would treat they would they refuse treatment to unvaccinated COVID patients. You know, it's not something that's being like in our vernacular or in even in our minds. Like it's an, not even a question, really. And it's a, I think that's what makes this comment from AMA Victoria so strange in my mind. Like nobody else is agreeing with it. Like I haven't heard a single single person, single doctor, single nurse saying, yeah, that we shouldn't you know stop treatment for these people. Like it's just bizarre. Yeah. Look. If only time prevailed. There's so much nuance to it. Um, in our pre-show mm. prep, so to speak, we were thinking about it as an adjacent to the trolley problem, weren't mm. we? Yeah. You know, especially if you're talking about um, finite resources in healthcare services, finite number of beds, finite mm. number of doctor hours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not as simple as that, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really reassuring to hear that that's not a conversation mm-hmm. that's taking place. No. <laughs> between, no. I, between I don't. Members. I think that, you know, the moment it does start taking place is the moment I don't really want to be working in healthcare anymore. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I've got a bit of Halloween trivia for you. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Guys, have you heard of the phenomena aphantasia? 
No, I have not. No. Okay, so the follow-up question before I reveal what it exactly is and what, I've, what I think I understand it to be, do you guys, um, if you're reading a something that might be like a horror story, mm. does it scare you? I, I have been scared by... Particularly Stephen King books in the past. Okay. Yeah, like maybe like psychological thrillers, but yeah. like okay. not the supernatural stuff. So, no. no. Aphantasia apparently is a phenomenon where people don't get scared by reading or hearing um, scary mm. stories that other people get scared by. And the suggestion by the research that I looked at was that it's because people who do experience aphantasia, they can't bring images to mind of the scene. Mm. Yes. So they can read a Stephen King book, mm. but they can't bring those images to life in their mind, which the 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 theory the the hypothesis is um, that that is the the grounds that's the seeding of you know the horror the scare. That's interesting because this is a conversation that I intimately have with my family where my siblings can't they they can't see images in their head they can hear things but nothing comes to mind if you say picture a purple elephant they cannot picture a purple elephant yeah so there's no chance of picturing you know a ghost or whatever else that's right yeah so you can't picture it you 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 know intellectually are alert to the concept yeah. of ghost yeah <laughs> but the, the theory would be that it's something like a movie which is you know all imagery that would scare them, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And, but there's a, a really um, – what I perhaps found most interesting was, you know, the positive offset of some people who do have mm. um, uh, this um, uh, experience of aphantasia is that these people are apparently much more less likely, less likely to develop disorders associated with fear memories such as post-traumatic wow. stress. Mm. I mean, there is such a visual uh, component mm. to PTSD. Mm. Uh, God, that, that would make Partic- a lot of sense. Yeah. Particularly with dreams and flashbacks. Flashbacks and yeah. yeah, wow, fascinating. And triggers and, oh, oh my god, yeah, that's uh, folks that are listening in. Aphantasia, a p h a n t a s i a. If yeah. you want to let your Google fingers do some walking, and that's a bit of good Latin. So a lack of and fantasia, I like guess fantasy or. Phantasm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, wow. Hey, um, we're wrapping up. A couple of quick shout-outs. First of all, to um, many of the team here at um, Triple R who have been nominated for a CBAA, Community Broadcasting Association of Australia Award, um, for all the work they did in getting live to air through COVID lockdowns and so on. So um, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that team. Um, And just a a final note of encouragement for those of you who are experiencing the Spring Carnival and may have a, um, a... a flutter too many. Please do reach out for help um, uh, if that's uh, if that's for you. But we're wrapping up radiotherapy. Big thank to our um, guests, um, Kate Gregorich and Gorovich and John Vanderkellen from um, Doctors for the Environment Australia. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.